0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Package Tourist, hosted by yours truly, The Package Tourist in the magical mystery tour called Life, Matthew Divias. Tonight's guest is esteemed hockey author Eric Zweig. If there is ever a Hall of Fame for hockey authors, then Eric Zweig should be an inaugural inductee. Since 1992, Eric has blessed hockey readers with over 40 books written for all age groups devoted to hockey history. In fact, his latest release, The Official NHL Hockey Treasures, came out last December and is available at Amazon. However, for this show, I will be interviewing Eric in his capacity as a hockey historian about the 50th anniversary of the Boston Bruins winning the 1970 Stanley Cup Finals against the St. Louis Blues, which had, took place on May 10th, 1970. That victory remains one of the most famous moments in NHL history for reasons Eric Zweig will will explain right now. Eric, please tell our listeners why Boston's triumph in the 1970 Stanley Cup Finals is historically significant.
1: Well, it's funny. I've thought a lot about this uh, since you know we we you you reached out to me to, to talk about this. Uh, honestly, part of the reason is, of the course, the the footage and the photograph of of Bobby Orr's goal. Um, you know, I'm sure people. Well, I hope people who are listening to this will, will instantly recognize the, the the image in their head of of Orr flying through the air, or the or the the film footage of it. I, I think that's a big part of it. Part of it also is just the fact that it's Bobby Orr who's flying through the air. If it's somebody else, it might not resonate the way it does because Orr's season in '69-'70, um, the hockey news in 1999. I guess it was a sort of end of the century sort of thing uh, took a poll and and considered that the, 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 greatest season, the most influential season, I guess, in the, in the history of hockey up to that point, or who had already sort of begun to revolutionize the game. And then people it's I was talking to Stan Fischler the other day. And he was, he, he doesn't like, you know, he, he, he's happy to give credit to or as a great player, but doesn't like people saying he revolutionized the game. They were rushing defensive before that, uh, you know, including red Kelly and, and, uh, Doug Harvey fairly recently. So it's not just like way back to Lester Patrick, but clearly or, you know, after or everybody sort of felt they needed a defenseman who could, who could play offense. Um So, or in the, in 69, 70, of course, he, he wins the, the Norris trophy as best defenseman for the, I can't remember. I think it's the fourth season in a row at that point. Might only be the third. Uh, he wins the Hart trophy as the MVP. He wins the scoring title. He's the first and only though he's done it twice defenseman ever to lead the NHL in scoring. And then, of course, Caps a brilliant playoff performance that, that earns him uh, uh, the Smythe Trophy as playoff MVP with, with, with the game-winning goal in overtime in the final game. And the other thing I was thinking, too, a couple of things, is that I realized at some point this afternoon, in, in 1970, since 1956, Montreal had won the Stanley Cup nine times. Toronto had won it four times. Chicago was the only other team in that run to win it, and even at that, they hadn't won it since '61. So it has been this long, long run of Canadian teams winning the championship, and you know, and uh, the time when there was only two of, of the six teams in the league. And this, you know, it was it was Mother's Day, an afternoon game that was on television in the states. So I think tons of people were watching. Boston hasn't won the Cup since 1941, so it's been 29 years. It's just everything sort of. Runs together to make this a, a a truly memorable moment. Fifty years later, that we're still talking about.
0: You mentioned that immortal photograph. You know, Bobby Orr airborne celebrating after the the puck. You know, went into the net. Do, do we know the name of the photographer who took that immortal photograph? Do we know the guy's name?
1: It, it is known, and I should. It's something like Ray Lucider, Okay. L u s i t e r. It's it's pretty close to that. If that's not quite right. Uh, I think he's a, an AP photographer, or was, rather. Okay. Um, you know, just the right place at the right time kind of thing. And I think there might be any stories that we talked about, you know, I just decided I was going to move down to this end and put myself here, so I might be mixing that up with uh, yeah. with the, the Turovskis and, and uh, Michael Burns and the the, the shot of uh, Barilko in 51. Yeah. But uh, regardless, those, you know, again, those are two... Tremendously iconic goal because of the image, as much as anything. Now, have you ever met Bobby Orr, or have you interviewed him? Uh, you
0: never, so you've I, never met I him have, in the flesh.
1: I I have met him, but not in any way that I'm sure he would remember. Um, it was, uh, I, when I was working at the Hockey Hall of Fame in the uh, first year when they opened the new Hall of Fame in that old bank building in downtown Toronto, and tons of guys came in and out. Um, and so I met a lot of them, but, you know, like I was just, uh, <laughs> I was do that kind of simpsons voice, you know, that have you been upstairs to see the Stanley Cup yet? I mean, I wasn't yet. I wasn't famous beyond my own family yet. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm sure it made no impression on Bob Yor. It's interesting, when I was working on my biography of Art Ross, um, and the Ross family, the grandchildren of Art Ross, who are, are you know, the people I was mostly in touch with, um, they still had tickets in 1970. Uh, art, the third is art's grandson and his, his nephew and art's son. It's always been too many arts. Art Ross's son, John and art Ross's grandson, art Ross, the third were at the game together and, and saw it. Wow. And, and Victoria Ross, who's one of two sisters in that generation. She had, I can't, she had some sort of charitable work in, in, uh, Boston and Bobby Orr occasionally did some work with the group that she worked with, and she tried to get in touch with him to, you know, write a blurb or something for the book. But we never, we never managed to track him down. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. In my professional capacity, I have had no real interactions with Bobby Orr. But it's funny—I told you one of my first hockey memories. Now I'm, I'm 56, um, so I was six years old this spring that Bobby Orr scored this goal. But I don't remember it at all. I, I went to my first game the following season in December of 1970, and it's kind of like hockey starts for me after that game. Yeah. Everything before it is history. Yeah, But sometime shortly after, I saw the film. The, I don't know if it was an official NHL film, whatever it was, of the 1970 Stanley Cup. I remember it was at a Brick's function in Toronto. And they had the footage, and I, as I said, I think it was like the official highlight film of the 1970 Stanley Cup. And I remember the the guy running the projector, running it back and forth and back and forth. So it would sort of like fly through the air and then fly back through the air on his feet. And back to, that's like one of my earliest yeah. hockey memories.
0: Yeah. Um, talking about other great players on that Bruins team, besides being a great shooter and scorer, what else did Phil Esposito bring to the Bruins team as a player?
1: Well, it's interesting. I, I You know, Esposito came to Boston in 67 in a big trade with Chicago had been a decent player, but not the guy he'd become. And he gives credit to Harry Sinden for sort of seeing, seeing the potential to be a great scorer. Uh, I think in addition, I mean, you know, he wasn't a great skater and he was never a great skater, but he, he could stand in front of the net and take the punishment and whack the puck in, in the, you know, I mean, he, in my memory of it. He sort of invented that, standing in the slot. I don't think they called it the slot until he he stood in there, and they could bang in pucks. And also, though I don't think most of us in Canada, maybe Bruins fans already knew, until the 72 Canada Cup, didn't realize what uh, a powerful force he could be, what a leader he could be. Though in, in the Boston team, really, John Busick was mostly by uh, dint of his seniority was the leader in the in the dressing room. But clearly and they and also a lot of the Bruins talk about by nineteen seventy how how Orr was sort of quietly the leader. I don't think he was a rah rah guy, but just his intensity and his focus and his professionalism, I think, uh rubbed off. Whereas I think Esposito was more of a holler guy and might, you know, pick you up and give you a shake. Um, but you know, I, I shouldn't really say that. I don't know that he was that physically a leader, but uh he's certainly present. But it's interesting I, I was, you know, I'm dropping a couple of names, and I don't have that many, but I, I called on a, a bunch of people when I knew I was talking to this, and one of them being Scotty Bowman, who has a tremendous memory for things and was, of course, the, the St. Louis coach at this point. Yeah. And he talked about just, because I, I was curious more, more so than why was the 70 team great, or the 70-71 team even greater, really, but why does the Boston team sort of not get, the, you know, when people talk about the greatest teams of all time, they don't talk about the Bruins. And it's mostly because we all sort of agree because they didn't win. They didn't win in 71. They had that great season and then they lost. Then they win the cup again in 72. If they'd actually won in 71 and had three in a row, it would be hard to argue they weren't one of the greatest. Well, dynasty is in, in in three straight, but... Uh, you know, one of the greatest teams in the offense is because of the, the huge numbers they were putting up. In that 70-71 season, they set like 37 new NHL records. They set the record for goals by a team, points by a team, wins by a team, and most of them have all been broken. But this was a real powerhouse club. And and Scotty told me that, uh, you know, the Blues, as people might not know, in the, the original, the, the first three years after expansion, the NHL had set up the playoffs to guarantee... That one of the new teams would reach the finals against one of the old teams because they thought it would help to to build interest in the new cities. So St. Louis turns out to win the the Western Conference or what the division I guess it was called that uh, three years in a row. Yep. They lose 12 straight games, but in the two series against Montreal in '68, '69, even though they were swept, they were all pretty close games. Yep. And there's quotes before the seventy series of Glenn Hall specifically, you know, saying about the Bruins that, you know, they don't scare us. But the Bruins weren't scared either. And and Bowman says that, you know, even though they got swept by Montreal in those two straight years, they were sort of in the games, with the Bruins just really blew them out. I mean the fourth game was close, but the first three were really one sided. And he just talked about what a deep team it was, that they had two great scoring lines. I mean, they have Esposito, centering Cashman and Hodge as the big line that everybody sort of knows and remembers. But the second line was Fred Stanfield, not a big name, uh, centering John Busick and John McKenzie. And they actually led the play. The three of them set a new record for scoring in the playoffs that year. I mean, Esposito actually set the single scoring record in the 70 playoffs. But the the line of Busick, Stanfield, and McKenzie scored more as a line than any team had ever – any, any threesome had ever scored before. And they get, you know, like no recognition except that, you know, Bufa gets to carry the, the, the cup at the end. But, you know, people think of that as Orr's series and Esbo, but, but, you know, they've they had two great scoring lines. They had the line with Derek Sanderson centering Westfall and Carlton. That was a big shutdown line. And that's really, um, you know, they, they had a tough series in the quarterfinals against New York. And a really physical series. And then the second round was Boston versus Chicago. And Chicago had actually finished first in the East division that year. Had edged out Boston at the end, Boston had sort of slumped down the stretch. And the two teams actually finished tied in points, but Chicago had more wins, so we're given first place. So when the two of them met in the semifinals, Chicago actually had home ice. And people, this was looked at as, you know, this is basically the Stanley Cup because they know whoever wins is going to beat the expansion team from the other side, and this was a big series. It's Bobby Hall against Bobby Orr. It's Phil Esposito against Tony Esposito, and this was Tony's, you know, brilliant rookie year where he had the 15 shutouts, and uh, and it, it, it seemed like it was going to be a classic, and Boston just swept them and swept them fairly easily because basically Westfall and the Sanderson line shut down Hall completely, and and they just sort of went meek and mild, and Boston romped through that series. Uh, so they actually ended up, you know, two straight wins to close up the New York series, four straight against Chicago, and then four straight against St. Louis, ten playoff wins in a row, which was the record. Uh, of course, this playoffs hadn't been that long until expansion in 67, but yeah. they, they they were really a dominant team that year. Okay. So it's funny, but Stan Fischler <laughs> Stan Fischler, who's been, you know, writing about hockey since the sixties and watching hockey since he was a kid in the forties, he told me that he feels like the sort of post-expansion 67-68 season until about 1972 was the worst hockey he remembers of his entire life since the post-war era, that it was unbalanced and the the old teams were so much better than the new team. So he, he doesn't give uh, Boston full credit for being a powerhouse, but man, they were a powerhouse. Sorry, Stan. <laughs> yeah.
0: How did Harry Sinden coach the Bruins? What made him the great coach that he was?
1: Well, again, I think he, you know, he's 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 an old school sort of guy. Um, he, I think, was an intimidator. I mean, not quite the stories you'd hear about, you know, guys like Pun Jimlack and, and and Dick Irvin, you know, with the, you know, train or no, Jack Adams really with the, you know, train tickets to the miners in their pocket. I don't think he had that. I think he could relate. Like, I think that's sort of like he was the right guy for the right time. Like, he was young enough that he recognized these were young guys who you couldn't bully in that sort of way, but he played a lot of hockey, he'd been coaching and worked his way up through the minors, knew how the game worked, um, you know, I think was a, a good strategist, If uh, and um, just a, a, an interesting hockey man, and of course he, he quits the team shortly after this, uh, maybe it's after the next season, or was it right after the Stanley Cup?
0: No. I mean, yeah, it was, and, te- yeah. You know, it was right it was after the thing. Back
1: yeah, yeah. So he's not there for the next two seasons, and then sort of gets back into hockey when he's asked to coach uh, Canada in '72. But uh, yeah, he's an interesting guy, though I, I have to say I don't have a lot of firsthand, you know, like it's as I said, this is sort of an era before I remember. It's kind of like between my sweet spot, you know, like the really old stuff that I've researched the heck out of, and the newer stuff that I've seen over the years. So Sidney falls a bit between my 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 knowledge gap there, but. Uh, but, you know, clearly, he, I, I do think he was the right guy in the right place. And as I said, Esposito really credited him for for seeing in him the, the potential to be a great scorer.
0: Yeah, I had the honor of meeting Harrison, and I interviewed him in person uh, 10 years ago when I was working on another project. What struck me when I met him is that he has that aura. He, you just instinctively do what the man says. He's just not that, you know, not intimidating, but just that natural aura of command where you just instinctively go, okay, what can I do to help you, Mr. Sinden? What can I what can I do to help you, coach? It was just didn't feel threatened or pushed, but just you you wanted to help this guy out. I mean, was that the impression you got when you're doing your own research?
1: Well, that's interesting. I mean, I I don't know that I've ever seen it quite as clearly as that, but that makes sense. I mean, from what I know of him, what I've seen of him, you know, from quite the distance. But, uh, that, yeah, I, I can believe that. I mean, it's interesting that, so it's funny, it's like talking about the the uh, overtime and, and it's interesting that you know like the way the players sort of saw differently like like after the so the fourth game, as I say it's been three blowouts, the fourth game is is tight and St. Louis you know possibly could have won that game. Um, and Boston sure as heck didn't want to go back to St. Louis. They, they were ready to finish it. So they had actually scored the tie fairly late in the third period and then it goes into overtime. And uh, it's funny, that Derek Sanderson is quoted in the papers as saying that Sinden had basically told them to take it easy in overtime and play it safe, whereas Hodge interpreted it as just saying, you know, be careful that, that, you know, St. Louis likes to come out strong in overtime and just, you know, take their first shot and, and be careful and, you know, we'll turn it around and we'll beat them. So that's not quite what you're saying. And so in one instance where maybe he wasn't as clear as he thought he was being, but, uh, you know, it turned out, it turned out well for them. Uh, Let
0: me see. Uh, Now, Boston only won one more cup in the seventies. That was in 72. What kept the Bruins uh, from being a more dominant team during the decade? Do you have any theories, Eric?
1: Well, this is funny. Like This is specifically what I was asking yesterday. I asked uh, Stan Fischler about, I asked, Scotty and I asked Dick Irvin, uh, the the Montreal legendary broadcaster. Um, well, it's funny that Scotty didn't really have a good reason. He he agreed that you know had they won the three in a row, if they hadn't lost to Montreal in '71, that they would be thought of more highly. Um, Stan thought that was silly, you know. Like yeah, sure, if 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 you know you can if anybody into contention that way. But I, you know what? They they just I think that, you know, for many of those years, they were the second-best team, and that's not quite good enough. You know, like, in the, in the later 70s, they run into the powerhouse that is Montreal. Yeah. Uh, in 74, I mean, I think that that one specifically, maybe, that Stan felt. They should have won in 74. They should have been better than the Flyers. But, uh, you know, the Flyers were a – well, you know, the Flyers, I guess, outbrewing the Bruins, right? Like, the Boston yeah. team in the early 70s was the big, bad Bruins, and they were tough, and they could beat you in any way whereas Philadelphia sort of took that to the next level. Yeah. And it's interesting, Scotty told me when he was with, I guess, both St. Louis and even in his early years in Montreal, they tried to keep the puck away from Orr as much as possible. They didn't even want to, like, carry it on offense in on his side in case he should pick it off and, and turn it around and go the other way. Whereas Shiro with 74 specifically, they threw the puck at Orr and just decided they were going to exhaust him and beat the hell out of him. Yeah. Um, and and it worked for them, but that that wasn't how Scotty chose to do it. But why why weren't they better? I, I don't know. Uh or his knees I'm sure, that's a bit of it, though he you know, I mean, he just couldn't even though he was so amazing for such a long time, but towards the end, you know, he just can't do it. Um but I think, you know, like like both uh uh well Dickerman for sure thought, you know, the seventy one Montreal team is underrated, that they were a great team. They had tons of Hall of Famers. They still had some of their great guys from the 60s, and they have some of the guys who are going to become the great guys of the 70s. You know, that's basically looked at as sort of, you know, Dryden comes out of nowhere and stones the Bruins, and it's a huge upset. Dick doesn't feel that way. He feels that Montreal team is undervalued. And the funny thing, the thing that both that Stan said that he had heard, and he didn't have uh, any. First hand, he wasn't going to tell me who he'd heard it from, but he'd never heard it specifically in Boston. But people would refer to the team as sort of undisciplined, which he thought was the, the way people thought of the Blackhawks in the 60s as well. And why they hadn't kind of lived up to their potential. And Dick definitely thought in 71, he remembered specifically, this is a little bit, you know, like Boston won the first game, though it was a tight game. And in the second game, they, they were beating Montreal 5-1 after the first period. Uh, I can't remember if Montreal scored quickly at the end and maybe it was 5-2. to But anyway, they, they built up a 5-1 lead in that game. And Dick said when they came back to the second period that uh, there was a shot of the Bruins on the ice and that Orr and Sanderson were laughing. And that that Ralph Mellenby, who was the producer, you know called up to the box and said, look at these guys, they're, they're not taken seriously, this game isn't over. And, of course, it wasn't. Montreal rallied to win that game. And so that sort of, you know, maybe they were a little too full of themselves. Though you wouldn't think that would last over four or five seasons. Um, But that's the only thing. You know, maybe they weren't quite as disciplined as they might have been. That might have had to do with Sinning's believing. And maybe Sinning could have reined them in better, though I don't know enough about Tom Johnson as a coach to to say he couldn't. Yeah. but I don't know. I mean, that's like I was really curious as to why those Boston teams aren't thought of as more legendary. I mean, true, they did not win that many cups, but, man, they were in it again in 74. They were in it again in 77, 78 with basically a whole new cast. Okay. I mean, they clearly were doing something right, but they just weren't often enough the best when they were often the second best. And, you know, there's people don't remember who finished second. Okay. In your opinion, who was the unsung
0: hero of that Boston Bruins team that won in 1970? If you could single one person out as an unsung hero?
1: Well, you know, I don't know that I could pick as one, but I mean Westfall, as I said, Westfall was a huge key to winning that Chicago series. And the second line, Busek, Sanfield, and, and McKenzie were 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 scored a ton of points. I mean, Sanfield – and the other thing is too is that they were. They were such a team, this Boston team. There were 19 guys who dressed for the Bruins in the playoffs. And of those 19, 14 played in all 14 games, and 16 guys had at least one point. Wow. So they're, they're a pretty deep team. And that was sort of Scotty's point, But they were just a really good team. They could throw two scoring lines at you. They had a checking line. They had, you know, the fourth line is, is you know, didn't play much in those days. Um, so I don't know that I could pick one, but as I say, Westall's key to winning that Chicago series, and, and beating Chicago is really the key to winning the Cup that year.
0: And in terms of Boston, Boston sports history, would you say that 70 Cup win was an absolutely seismic event in the history of Boston sports?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I think, well, I wonder what, you know, you'd probably want to talk to a Boston guy, but for sure, the Bruins had been... Such a terrible team. They had been a real powerhouse in the in the late 30s and early early 40s. Um, the war kind of broke up that old gang of mine. I mean, I know that Milt Schmidt felt that they would have kept winning Cups if there hadn't been the war, that they were just that much better than anybody else. And then they go into this, this horrible spell. And Orr talks about that when they win in 70, that he thought, you know, how, how pleased he is for himself and how this is what he's always wanted growing up. But for guys like uh, Busek and Westfall and Ted Green and Eddie Johnson, who've been there for years and through such terrible teams. And uh, he talks about how when he first got there, these guys would tell him how bad the bad days had been and how excited they were that they were going to be able to turn this around now. And so, yeah, I think, you know, Boston, Boston was really the first great American hockey city and they had gone a long time without a championship, and I think it was. And of course, the you know, the Red Sox at that point haven't won, and it hasn't been quite as long as it would get, but it's still been an awfully long time. I guess the Celtics won all the time. Maybe people got tired of that. But yeah, I think this is a huge, a huge moment. And you know, they they say in the papers like 125,000 people were out for the Stanley Cup parade. Yep. Which now, of course, they like to measure these things in the millions. But I think in 1970, 125,000 people out for a, for a. Sports Parade was a pretty big crowd. So, yeah, I'd say it was a a huge moment in Boston
0: sports. Eric, I want to thank you so much for appearing on my show. I just want to ask you one last quick question. You just had a book release come out in December. You you said the book's available on Amazon, correct?
1: Wow, that's funny about that book. Um, Yeah, you know, if you Google my name or put my name in Amazon, you know, an awful lot of books. A awful lot of books show up. I mean, a lot of the books I've written are actually for children, but many aren't. Um, so you've got to have to look. But yeah, that that NHL Centennial book is actually the third edition of a book that I didn't work very much on. That edition, but I did most of the work in the first two editions. They they, they had somebody else to uh, update it because really I, I I had other projects I was working on at the time. But that it's it's a pretty neat book. That book. <laughs>
0: Okay. Do you have another book project lined up? I mean, can you give us a glimmer about what the topic might be, Eric?
1: Well, this is, you know, I haven't it hasn't all been finalized, but it's a subject that I've always been interested in, and it really goes back to my my nerdy early hockey interests. I think that I'm going to do a book on the, the history of the Kenora Thistles, who won the Stanley Cup in 1907, Ooh. or the <laughs> smallest town ever to win the Stanley Cup. And it's always been a story that's fascinated me.
0: Eric, I want to thank you so much for being on my show, and you take care. You stay safe, and may God bless and keep you always. Okay, Eric? Yeah, well, thank you very much. You take care. Thank you. All right. Stay tuned, ladies and gentlemen, for next week's show, where I will be interviewing author and baseball historian Chip Martin about his latest book release, The Man Who Made Babe Ruth. Thank you, and good night.